Today's passage is Romans 3:21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all, in, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by his faith, by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning, and I'm just so excited uh, just to get to be here today, to be one of your pastors and get to serve you this morning. This is such um, a cool week, just everything that's happening with Impact, and you're going to hear more about that later, but I just want to say personally, just as one of your pastors, just how thankful I am to get to be a part of a church who values, who invests in the next generation and families. Uh, who gives so much to put the gospel on display. Thank you for doing that. Um, I'm also so excited for us to dive into Romans this morning. And so hopefully you've been reading along with us. And if you, if you have, you know, the last four weeks have been pretty, pretty heavy. Uh, as we've been walking through sin and wrath and righteousness and justice and how we're condemned before God and how no one's without excuse uh, and this morning, as Josh just read, opening the word, we come to these words, but now. And there's just this massive shift, this, this tension. And so if you've been in this the last a month and a half with us, this is just an exciting morning as we're going to wrestle again through some deep things, but just seeing how God is at work to redeem people to himself and, and why he has chosen to do that this way. And so just to kind of get us going this morning, I, I want to I wanna introduce you to one of my sons. And I think we have a picture of him up on the screen. Uh, so yes, yeah, so this is Trip. Uh, and you ask, well, why is he named Trip? It's because we like the name. That was cool. So he's named Trip. Uh, and Trip, this was taken last fall. He's two and a half years old. And he's awesome. And as you can tell, he's super cute. Thankfully, he gets his looks from his mama. Uh, but here's the point. I don't want the cuteness to deceive you. Like this child, uh, he has another side to him. Just the other day, uh, we were hanging out, and um, he was touching uh, my beard, and uh, he was saying, Daddy, you have a beard? I said, yes, I have a beard. And he kind of looked up at me. He's like, Daddy, you have a beard in your nose. It's like, awesome. Thank you. So encouraging. You know, I thought you were this cute bundle of joy, but actually, like, you're like the dagger and twisting that's there. So, so as you guys know, this, this past week is Valentine's Day, and so if you're a parent, you know what happens Valentine's Day week. You do tons of work getting your kids Valentine's Day ready, like you hate Valentine's Day by the time it comes because you've done all this work to get their bags of candy ready, and then they bring home gobs of candy that you now have to keep them from like tearing the house apart because they're on a sugar rush. So 
Uh, Trip and Cam got home one day from school, and Trip was downstairs, Cam was upstairs, and Cam had a bunch of candy, and he had two of the same types of candy. So Katie told Trip, like, hey, if you'll go upstairs, ask Camden if you can have this box of candy since he has two of them, because he wanted to eat it. So Trip goes upstairs, and he comes back down uh, without the box of candy, and his mouth is full. And uh, so Katie asked him, like, what, what happened to the box of candy? And uh, he didn't want to say what happened. And then she asked the true question, did you ask your brother if you could actually have the box of candy? And you can guess what the answer was, no. And so I got home that night, and, um, the con- and Katie's telling me, like, hey, you need to ask Trip, Trip's sitting there, about Camden's box of candy. And I said, okay, what, what happened? And Trip then goes on to tell me that Camden gave him one of his boxes of candy. It's like, and Katie's like, that's not what happened. It's like, Trip, did you ask Camden for that candy? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, yes. <laughs> Guess what? He might be two and a half, but he's smart. He knows what's going on and he knows that lying and stealing is not allowed in our house. And so guess what he's doing? He's trying to cover it up. Uh, Here's the point. Here's why I bring this up as we dive into Romans chapter 3. If this bundle of cuteness and innocence is depraved and has a sin nature and is broken to the core, what chance do any of us have? Right? This has been the Apostle Paul's argument as we've gone through Romans 1.18 up until 3.19 last week or 3.20. And it ends on this verse in 3.20 that we looked at last week. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Throughout the last four weeks, we've wrestled through this idea that no one is right before God, that everyone has sinned, that even on their best day and our best day, we all have sinned against God. And so the tension that Paul has been trying to create can be summed up in a word. If everyone is unrighteous, everyone is guilty, we're all rebels, we're all ruined to the core, and God is holy, holy, holy God... How can we? This is the question that Paul has been teasing out and calling the church at Rome and us to answer. How can we, on our own, be made right with God? And the answer is one word. Impossible. It's impossible. You and I and the best person on world that you can imagine at their very best day, it is impossible for us to make ourselves holy before God. And if we're going to be really honest with ourselves this morning, and you know you, you know your heart, you know your past, you know your mind, you know the words that have come out, you know the desires, you know what's been done to you and what you've done to everyone, to be honest with ourselves, we have to come to this conclusion, we cannot make ourselves right before God. It's impossible. So whether you're a person who's never heard the good news of the gospel, whether you're a Jew, whether you were raised in church, all of this has come to this culminating moment where everyone is listening to this book, this letter from the Apostle Paul, and we're left there saying, we bring nothing to the table. How can we be made right with holy God? And then we get to verse 21, and these two beautiful words jump off the page. But now. But now. The righteousness 
of God has been manifested, it's been revealed, it's been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul's saying there is a way. What was impossible with you and what is impossible with me is possible with God. Amen? This is good news this morning. And this leads us to the big truth that we see in this text that we're going to unpack over the course of the next few minutes together is this. God alone is righteous and God alone is redeemer. God alone is righteous and redeemer. No one else is righteous, no not one, and no one else can redeem themselves. God alone is righteous and redeemer. Again, looking at verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What's it saying? It's saying that God is still righteous, and even though he is righteous, and he's just, and he's holy, and he must punish injustice, he must punish sin, there is a way that he can also be our redeemer. And so that raises several questions for us this morning. And as, as we walk through this passage, I just want to encourage you if, you, if you take notes, if you highlight, if you underline, every time you see the word righteousness, underline it, circle it, highlight it. Every time you see the word justify or justified, circle it. One, one of the important things, and again, we're, we're at a disadvantage because the Greek uh, is, this was an original Greek language, we read it in the English language, but when you actually read this in the Greek, it's the same root word that's used for righteousness and justification or justifying this passage. It's just used in different forms. It's the exact same word. So when you actually read through these ten verses, nine times in ten verses, Paul speaks about the righteousness and justice of God. This is why this is our big truth this morning. It's because nine times in ten verses, it talks about God's righteousness and how he can make us righteous. And so this morning, what, what I want to do is I want us to answer some of these questions that if you've been with us, you've probably been thinking about this morning. Five questions we're going to wrestle through, and some will move through quick, more quickly than others. One is, why is being right with God impossible for us? Why is being right with God, why, why is it impossible for us? Another one, how can we be made right with God? That, that has been one of the questions we've been wrestling through. How can we be made right with God? Another key question that we need to answer this morning. How can God be merciful and loving and at the same time be just and condemn sin? How can a good God be loving and just at the exact same time? And the question that I've been wrestling with the most we've been walking through this series is why? Why, God, have you chose to do it this way? Why is this your plan? Why is this your purpose? Why did it have to be this way? You created the world. You made all of this possible. You knew everything before it began. Why this way? We want to wrestle through that question this morning. Then lastly, how do we respond? How should we respond to the glorious truths in this passage? And so we're going to dive into this, and I just want to say from the beginning, as one of your pastors, as, as we walk through the book of Romans, one of the challenges uh, that we are up against, just going to be honest, is there are a lot of theological truths that we're wrestling through. And so 
one of the things that, that we try to do is we try to help unpack these truths in ways that make sense, that are as simple as possible, that, that kind of connect to your life and to our lives. But let me just throw out a warning in that. One of the dangers that, that we feel, that Pastor Mike, Pastor Daniel, myself feels, we're always afraid when we use illustrations that you'll walk away with the illustrations and not the truth they point to. Everything I give you this morning is to point you to this truth. And so lean into the truth. Wrestle with the truth. Think through the truth that's in the Word. And just recognize that every single illustration, explanation that we bring is inadequate to the reality of what's happening in this passage. So I, I just come to this text this morning just feeling my own inadequacies. Uh, some commentators have even said that this is the most important paragraph in all of Scripture. And so I just come knowing that I, I can't do justice to that. And so I just want to pray again and ask that you pray as well. The Holy Spirit would break through our blind hearts and our inadequacies so we might see Christ. Would you pray with me for yourself and the person next to you? Lord, we need you this morning. Father God, thank you that you are righteous and redeemer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd open our eyes to see your word because apart from that we can't. Take my weak words, move me out of the way, and let your word and gospel be glorified. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So question number one, why is being right with God impossible for us? Why is being right with God impossible for us? And this is the question that we've been raising, and Pastor Mike has done an amazing job walking through the text and helping us feel why this question is a reality for us. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and look at Romans chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to look at the, we'll start at the beginning, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is really important. For there is no distinction. So Paul's alluding back to everything that he's just said. Whether you're a person who's never heard of God, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, there's no difference. There's no distinction. You can be raised trying to follow God. We are all equally guilty before God. Verse 23, and this is a verse that if you've grown up in church, you grew up memorizing from the very beginning. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And that word all in the Greek, it means all. Everybody. Every person. Every single one. Not just a certain class of people. Not just a certain race of people. Every single person. So why is being right with God impossible for us? Two answers. Here's the first one. Because we all have sinned by rejecting God's righteous law. We have all sinned because we have all rejected God's righteous law, that God has made it clear for us the way that we are to live, whether you look at the Ten Commandments, whether you look at the Torah, uh, all throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, we have broken God's law. Even at the most simplest point, the, all the law of the prophets is summed up in one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Anyone in here done that their whole life? I'm glad you didn't put your hand up. That would be embarrassing for us all. So you're helping me here. No, none of us have loved God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our being, with all our strength. Every single day, every single moment, we have all fallen short of the law. But it's not just that we have all sinned 
little sins, but we have all greatly sinned against God's law. Jesus brings this out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said not to commit murder. Any of you who've had anger or hatred in your heart toward a brother or sister has committed murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who's looked at another man or woman with desirous or lustful intent, you've committed adultery. Jesus takes the law and he raises it. In fact, he even goes to the point uh, in Matthew chapter 5 where he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And if you can imagine Jesus teaching and saying that, and everyone's looking at the Pharisees and scribes because they were the keepers of the law, the teachers of the law, to hear Jesus say that would have been just aghast to the crowd. What? I have to be better than him? There, there's no way that my righteousness can exceed that. And this is the point. None of us can be good enough. We have all sinned and broken God's law. But not only have we all sinned, this is the root of it, and this is the second answer to the question of why is being right with God impossible for us, and it's that we have all fallen short of his glory. This is the second big idea. We've all fallen short of his glory. Not only have we sinned against God, but this is the real issue. We have fallen short of the glory of God. God is the standard. We talked about this some last week, that a lot of times in our own sin, our own flesh, we like to compare our lives, compare our sins to the people, those around us. And so in comparison to other people, we feel better about ourselves. We put them down to raise ourselves up. But when God becomes the measuring stick, every single person falls short. If you were here last week, remember uh, the, the picture of swimming to Japan. If three people decide that they're going to swim to Japan, imagine Japan is the glory of God and you're in California and for some of you may not even get off the beach. For others, maybe you get a mile or two in the water. But even at the very best, if you made it 20, 25 miles, you fall immeasurably short. When God's glory is the standard, none of us meet that standard. He is the holy, holy God. None of us can do that. A 100 is the score on the test that you must get to be holy before God. And you and I take the test. It's like us getting a negative 2. Not only did you miss every single question, but you misspelled your own name too, right? Like, that's a bad test. So it's not God is at 100 and we're at 70 or we're at an 80 or we're at a 50. No, no, we don't even score on the test in comparison to God's holiness. I've heard it said, you know, no two men stand at the foot of Mount Everest and argue about who's taller. They just look up in awe. And that's what this text has been meaning to do to us. Stop comparing to the person to your right, to your left, to your parents who you felt like didn't do it right to all the people who've wronged you and suppressed you and start setting yourself against the standard of perfection of God's holiness. Just look up in awe. 
and you will see and I will see we fall immeasurably short. We have all sinned and broken God's law, but not only have we all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory. Isaiah 64, 6, you might say, well, but Paul, I've done a lot of good things. Can my good deeds not outweigh my bad deeds? Well, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we have become like one who is unclean, and all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And literally, I don't mean to be graphic, but the text is graphic, like rags of menstruation. Our very best deeds are filthy, dirty rags in comparison to God's glory. No one comes close. Everyone's condemned. God is righteous. We are unrighteous, unworthy, fallen short, deserving of God's righteous punishment and wrath. We can never measure up. However, however, we don't have to. Look at your Bible again at the end of verse 23. This is so important. Again, you circle, you underline in your, body, or your Bible. Look at what it says at the end of verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma. I don't know if anybody here is a fan of grammar. I'm not like a grammar person, but I love grammar here because this isn't a period. It's not all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, period, done, over. This is a pause and a continuation of a sentence. And look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? We have fallen short, but God has made a way, and that way is Jesus. And that leads us to the second question. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. How can we be made right with God? How can we be made right with God? How can we who are unworthy, undeserving, under God's wrath, how can we be made right with God? How can we be made holy in God's sight? And here is the next big idea and the answer that that the Apostle Paul gives us. God makes sinners right in his sight through Jesus' death in our place. This is the way we become right with God. Not our doing, not our works, not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but Jesus' sacrificial death for you and for me, being our sin bearer. Look at verse 24 through 26. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? So here's what I want to do. I want us to unpack how that works. Because you might be sitting there and saying, okay, I've heard that before. We can be made right with God through Jesus. But Paul, how does that work? And thankfully, the Apostle Paul answers that question. He does it through four theological terms. And so if you download the notes, all the information's there for you. I just want to give four definitions that Paul gives us for how this comes about. The first one is this. It's justified or justification. We are justified by his grace. Justification is to be declared not guilty before holy God. So it's a legal term. It's a legal term. Think about a courtroom setting, a judge rendering a verdict, guilty or not guilty. And the argument that we've made up to this point is that every single person is guilty. 
And so the question is, how can those who are guilty be made not guilty, be justified, be made righteous, which means to see someone and not see their sin, see their perfection? This is what the word justification means. This is what Paul is saying. He said, there's a way for you to be made not guilty before God through Jesus Christ. Imagine with me, uh, you, you grow up in a neighborhood and all your life, you do the very best you can, but you just feel like you can't win. You're constantly, just everything goes wrong. Your constant life is a struggle. You're frustrated. Everything you do, you can't find happiness. You can't find joy. And imagine there's this guy in your neighborhood, and his life is perfect. He has everything he wants. He has everything he needs. And the worst part about him is he's the kindest person you've ever met in your life, right? It annoys you how perfect he is. He's, he's, got an, he's got a dog. You don't even like dogs. This dog's named Daniel, and it's just nice and kind and obedient and never barks at anybody. He's even got a cat, and cats are terrible, and this cat's named Mike, and, and the cat's kind, and Mike loves cats. And, and it's just, it always just rubs against you. It's never mean, and it just frustrates you so much. And let's just say one day you're just so fed up with how perfect and wonderful and awesome this life is. Like, I'm done with my terrible life. So you decide in your anger that you're going to break into his house, you're going to ruin his life. And you do that. You break into his house, you steal his stuff, you trash the place, you kick Daniel, you drop kick Mike through the window. And it's, it's just, you're so mad. And, and, then his son comes downstairs, and his son is even perfect. He's not threatening you. He's not telling you, you know, to get out. He's pleading with you to stop, pleading with you this is not right, pleading with you that you can take whatever you want. And in your frustration, you beat him, and you throw him down the stairs, and you, you go, and you steal the car, and you drive out, and you're so mad. You're flying down the highway. You hit a minivan, and you kill a family. Say you show up in court the next day. What do you think your verdict's going to be? guilty. And you are. And this is the argument that Paul's been making. We are guilty. We've committed murder. We've committed anger. We've been in frustration. We've lived for ourselves and we have ruined and wrecked everything around us because everything within us is ruined and wrecked and we stand before God guilty. Can you imagine the judge coming into the room looking at you and saying, not guilty. Doesn't make sense, but this is what Paul's saying. He's saying this is what is happening here. And so, how? How does that happen? Well, that brings us to the next word. It's the word grace. And grace means undeserved, unmerited favor. Undeserved, unmerited, unworthy favor. He goes on to say it is a gift. You can't earn it, it's a gift. So imagine, again, going back to our example, let's say that you're standing for the judge. He declares you not guilty. But then the judge says, you know what? I want you to come be my child as a part of my family. That's grace. Not only have you not been condemned, not only are you held not guilty, but then he says, come be a part of my family. Come take on my name. Come take on my inheritance. Come take on my wealth. Come take on my things. You get to be a part of my family and all my blessings flow to you. And let's just, for the sake of argument, let's, let's take this example to the next level. Let's say you walk into the courtroom and to your horror, as the judge comes out, the judge is that neighbor. It was his house. It was his car. It was his son. 
And now you're standing before that judge guilty. And he says, not guilty, innocent of all charges. And I want you to come be a part of my family. Wow. Grace. Why? Grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. But you might just say, that doesn't make sense. Like, how could he do that? How could he be a good, just judge? I've committed this evil and wrong. Well, it doesn't end there. Let's keep going to the third term. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to purchase or to buy out of slavery. If justification is a legal term, redemption is a marketplace term. And and during this time in society, many people were slaves. And it was easy to get sold into slavery because the poverty level is so high. And so you would sell yourself into slavery so that you could survive. And the argument that Paul makes later in the book of Ephesians is that we are all slaves to sin. And the picture is the picture of the Exodus, that God's children in Egypt, they were slaves to the Egyptian. They were in bondage. They couldn't break free. And all of us are in slavery to sin, and we cannot set ourselves free. We cannot buy ourselves out. And so Jesus pays the price with his life, his sinless life. He dies for you and for me. Going back to the courtroom analogy, so you're, you're sitting there, and let's say that judge comes out, he looks at you, and he doesn't say not guilty. Instead, he says, guilty is charged. And then at that moment, his son comes in the courtroom, the one that you beat, the one that you abused. And the judge, the father, looks at the son and says, son, I want you to take his place. I want you to take her place. I love you, and I love them, and I want you to pay their price. And the son looks at the father and says, I will gladly pay their price. This is redemption. This is him paying the cost that we deserve to pay. And let's just say that the punishment, this brings us to the fourth word, propitiation. So it's not just that Jesus willingly pays the price, but that the father, the judge, looks at the son and says, you are guilty. And he looks at you and says, you are not guilty. You're innocent. You're free to go. In fact, I want to bring you into my family. But then the judge looks at his son and says, you are guilty as charged. The sentence is death. See, propitiation, it is, it is the satisfaction of God's holy wrath, his righteous anger, which must be poured out on sin. God cannot be just and pardon injustice. The price must be paid. He is holy and he is love. But in order for his holiness to remain holy, he must punish injustice. None of us would like a judge who just loved everyone and let everyone go. Now we would look at that judge and say, maybe you're loving, but you are unjust. And God is not unjust. And so he pours out the punishment on his son instead of those of us who place saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the message of the entire Bible. Sometimes I've heard people say, why is the God of the Old Testament so angry and wrathful and vengeful and the God of the New Testament so loving and kind? And friends, he's the same God. It's just in the Old Testament he pours his anger and his wrath out on those who don't deserve it. And then on the New Testament he pours his wrath out on his son. Instead of on those who deserve it. This is is why he goes on later and he says, 
to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. What's he talking about there? He's saying that for those who trusted in Yahweh God, for Abraham, for Moses, for David, even though they were condemned in their sin, he did not pour his wrath out on them because he was looking ahead to his son's coming. Again, the picture of the Exodus is here. If you remember Passover night and death angel, and the angel of death is going to come, and he's going to take and kill every firstborn son, not just in Egypt, but all firstborn children, including the Hebrews. And the only way that the Hebrews can be saved is if they put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. What made the Hebrew children worthy to be spared versus the Egyptian children? Nothing. They weren't better. The only difference was the blood was covering them. And this is what what happens. This is the, the message of the gospel. The only way that we can be spared is to look to the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out on the cross. And on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on his son. This is why on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God looked away from his son for the first time, perfect relationship broken, and the wrath of God was poured out on his son instead of you, instead of me. This is why in the garden, Jesus talks about the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 50 talks about God's wrath being like a cup and it being poured out and you happen to drink his wrath. And, and that's why Jesus says, Lord, I don't want to take this cup, but not your will, not my will, your will be done. And I've, I've heard it likened to, if you can imagine, standing in front of a massive dam and you're on the ground and that dam is holding back the current of God's wrath and suddenly it breaks and it's coming towards you. You're in that courtroom. You're declared guilty. That sentence is coming. The punishment is coming. And at the last minute, all of that water, Jesus steps in the way and he takes the full weight of all of God's wrath. And on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath and he turned the cup over and said, It is finished. Price has been paid. Sin has been atoned for. This is how we can be made right with God, brothers and sisters. This is the gospel. Leads us to a third question. How can God be merciful and just at the same time? This is the answer. At the cross, God's righteous justice and loving mercy meet. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be simultaneously just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can righteous God be redeemer God? The answer is the cross. Where in that courtroom, the Son takes your place and my place. He gets declared guilty, and you get declared innocent. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul uh, talks about this. He says, For our sake, He, Jesus, or He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in 
him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's Martin Luther called this the great exchange, that Jesus takes our sin debt and we take on Jesus' righteousness. So this is why when God looks at his children, he cannot judge their sin. Why? Because that price was paid. Those who are under God's salvation will not experience God's wrath. Not because they don't deserve it, but because Jesus took what he didn't deserve. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Keller said it this way, on the cross, God does not set his justice aside. Instead, he turns it on himself. He doesn't become less just. He doesn't become less righteous. He aims it at himself. In the worst moment in human history, God the Father punishes God the Son for you, for me, for the world. Because we deserve it? No. Because of His grace. So that leads us to a fourth question. Why would God choose to redeem this way? Why would He do it this way? an answer, and I think this is the answer underneath the whole passage. This is easy for us to gloss over, this is easy for us to miss, but this is the reason why. God loves you, yes. God wants to rescue you, yes. God cares about the world, yes. But there's a greater reason why God would do it this way, and that reason is his own glory. Here's the next big idea, to put on glorious display the reality that he alone is Savior, and he alone is both righteous and Redeemer. Look at verse 26 and 27 with me again. For it was, this is the key word, to show or to demonstrate. Why did God do it this way? Why grace? Why justification? Why redemption? Why propitiation? He gives us the answer. To show, to demonstrate God's righteousness. If you look back up at verse 25, he says the same thing. This was to show God's righteousness. All of this was meant to be a billboard, a display, not pointing to us, but pointing to the glory of God. Why does he do this? So at the same time, he can show that he is just and the justifier. Friends, God is all about the glory of God. And the way that God can be most glorified is this way. And the reason all this is here is for you and I as broken sinners to look and see that the one person, the one being I need is God alone. You might say, well, that sounds really egotistical. It would be if you're not God. But I don't want to worship a God who's not about himself, who's about worshiping other people, don't you? I want a God who's supreme and ultimate. It's kind of like if you can imagine being at the beach and you're out in the ocean, you get caught in the undertow and you start drowning. And let's say that the best lifeguard in the world is on the shore and he sees you. Do you want the lifeguard at that moment to be like, you know, I would save you, but I don't want to show how awesome I am. I don't want you to think much of me. I don't want you to feel indebted to me. I, I don't want to make it about me. I'm not, no. No, you want him to jump in the water. You want him to do what he's able to do. You want him to save you because he is your savior and your hope. 
And you don't care about him getting the glory. In fact, you want him to get the glory and you're probably going to be thankful to him your whole life. And the reason why God has done all of this is all for his glorious grace. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he loves the world. Yes, he wants us to have a relationship with him. All those things are at play. But he wants us to see that he alone is the Savior. God is about his glory. God's greatest pursuit is his own glory. And being simultaneously just and simultaneously the justifier, righteous and redeemer, brings him the most glory. All of Romans 1 through 3 has led up to this moment. Why would God do this? Because this displays his grace, this displays his glory, this displays him as Savior. This makes us look away from ourselves. Listen, we're almost finished. And turn away from all the false saviors this world has to offer and see the one true Savior and place our faith in him alone. That's why all this is here. Turn us to him. So how should we respond? Last question. Faith alone in Jesus alone. I just want to read these verses over again. I've glossed over them. Now I want to come back to them because you see three key statements that we've passed over in this passage. Verse 22. For the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus our response. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How do we respond? Faith. What is faith? What is faith? Faith is two sides of one coin. One side of faith is you see yourself as bankrupt. Utter need. You bring nothing to the table. The other side of faith, it's repentance. It's recognizing that all the saviors that you've placed your hope in, that you've rested in, that you've trusted in, that they're, they're not enough. They're, they're not going to do it. They can't save you. And turning from them and turning to Jesus Christ. It's recognizing that we're broken and bankrupt and that he alone is the righteous savior. And turning to him as the righteous Savior. Faith alone in Jesus alone. Tim Keller, who some of you have his commentary, says, All you need is nothing. All you need is need. Later he says, Faith is simply coming to God with open hands. Not going to false gods. I'm repenting, I'm turning. And I'm coming to you bringing nothing but my sin and asking you to be my Savior. Friends, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Saving faith is not just believing that Jesus died on the cross. It's not just a mental assent that Jesus is Savior. But it's surrender of control 
See, what, what saves us in the Old Testament is not works in the New Testament faith. It was always Jesus' work, and our faith is a recipient of Jesus' atoning work on our behalf. Your faith is not based on what you feel in the moment. It's not based on your Bible study or your good deeds. Faith is just the acknowledgement that Jesus alone is Savior, and it's surrendering the control of your life to Him as your Lord as your treasure, as your king, as your savior. Has that happened to you? Ephesians 2, the band can come up, so we're going to move into a time of response. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. Seeing every single other Savior, every single other hope is bankrupt and you are bankrupt and turning to Jesus. I just want to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, not because I want to do anything tricky or anything like that, because I just want to give you a moment just to think, to pray, to meditate. Has that ever happened to you? Have you been placing your faith in your faith, your faith in your good works, your faith in your religious attendance, your faith in your family's faith? Or have you seen yourself as utterly broken, seen Jesus as the only Savior who paid the price, whose the God, wrath of God was poured out on him, and seen God as the only one who can rescue you from you, turning from him, turning to him as Savior and Lord? You can do that now. You can ask him to be that for you now. When we stand and sing just a moment, there will be men and women going out these doors who will be at the hub who'd love to talk with you. And it won't be awkward for you to go out. You can have a conversation that can happen now. And then for those of us in this room who are believers, who are Jesus followers, we just thank God for grace. We celebrate the cross. We respond in humility. We respond in holiness, running to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So I want to pray for you, and then we're going to stand and sing, but you can stay where you are. You can pray in your seat. You can pray at the altar. You can go out and speak to someone. This is your time to respond to the good news of the gospel. I want to encourage you to do what the Spirit is leading you to do in this place. Dear Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for all here in this room. We thank you for the gospel. I just ask this morning that we would respond to the gospel in faith, in obedience, in repentance, living for ourselves, that are living for you, even as believers this week. We've sinned, we've turned back to false saviors of you. Forgive us, let us now repent and turn to you. Our rock, our redeemer, our cornerstone, our hope. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Just stand and join us.